Welcome to Stories of Iceland. In January, I posed a few questions to my friends on Facebook about how Iceland would deal with the pandemic in modern times. It was quite an interesting discussion, but though we knew of the coronavirus, we would never have expected the level of disruption we are seeing today. The public health authorities here in Iceland have taken this issue seriously from day one. At the end of February, the first case was confirmed and and was rapidly followed by more instances. The virus came to Iceland via northern Italy, where Icelanders had been on a skiing holiday. On the 16th of March, a ban on mass gatherings was implemented. Colleges and so-called junior colleges are now only teaching online. For younger kids, there are rules about how many can be in the same room and how far apart they are supposed to be. We have been asked to avoid the elderly for their own protection. Workers in assisted living for the elderly have been tasked with teaching them how to use their smartphones and tablets to help combat isolation. We seem to have enough of everything. There are people hoarding toilet paper, but not so much that there is a shortage. It makes you think that the Japanese know what they're doing. The authorities published a list of recommended supplies. It was widely mocked for the repeated suggestion of buying beef stroganoff, which many younger people had never heard of. Tourism is falling rapidly. Hotels are mostly empty, and also restaurants which relied on tourists. On the other hand, home delivery is on the rise. Many companies are hiring people to deal with the demand. I mostly stay at home. I haven't recorded an episode of my other podcast, the one in Icelandic, since I don't want to pressure guests to come to my studio. My boys go to school every other day, but all after-school's activities have been cancelled. My younger son turned seven, but we didn't invite any guests this time. A larger party that was supposed to be held with other kids from his class at a gymnastics hall has been cancelled. At the same time, my wife is busier than ever. She works for the Reykjavik school authorities and was instructed even before everything went into overdrive, to keep away from large gatherings of people, since her job is seen as important in this crisis. She mostly communicates with schools and gathers information about how they should deal with possible infections, social distances, and all those questions that nobody had thought to ask before all this started. We are not hoarding, but... We are buying more at a time to limit trips to the supermarket. I am also using the opportunity to do some baking at home. This is a weird time. I don't often tell people this, but I am a bit of a germophobe. I can handle it in day-to-day life, but if I shake somebody's hand, I am very likely to go wash my own hands when I get the opportunity. I prefer the Vulcan salutes. Live long and prosper. But now I am watching most people behaving as I would if I had no self-control whatsoever. 
I do have some flu-like symptoms, but it doesn't seem serious right now. On top of the coronavirus, we have earthquakes, which might signal a coming volcanic eruption near the famous Blue Lagoon. Well, if it goes off, at least there are a lot of free hotel rooms available. There has been a steady increase in downloads of the podcast in the last few months. If you want to help me focus more of my energy towards this podcast, please support me on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash stories of Iceland. My newest supporter is Destination Burning Man. I'd like to thank all of my supporters, especially Troy Williams, Kristen Rose, and Catherine Matthews, friends of the podcast. Join them at patreon.com slash stories of Iceland. There is extra material and episodes get posted earlier. Every bit helps and now that the Icelandic krona is getting weaker, it would help if I could get a few dollars more. I already have a fistful. But this is Stories of Iceland and this is episode 29, Iceland in 1918, Pandemic and Other Threats. Iceland is in the North Atlantic. Its capital city is Reykjavik. Even though we look quite isolated on a map, we have always had regular contact with the outside world. The ocean doesn't only keep people away, it also brings them here, whether they are fishermen, traders or explorers. So, when a disease hits Europe, it also hits Iceland. Often there is a delay, but it always gets here. The sea also brings other dangers to our shores. The year 1918 didn't start well. It was one of the coldest ever. The pond in Reykjavik froze all the way through. Drift ice rounded the country, and as many as 27 polar bears came with it. Of course, some of those bears might have been spotted more than once in different areas. The most famous case of a polar bear visit in 1918 was at Langanes. Langanes is the tail of the Icelandic sheep. You might also remember it as the site of my great-great-grandfather's battle with French sheep stealers. This story begins on Friday the 18th of January. It was at the farm Eldjotstad, Fire Iron Farm which was in fact a collection of three linked homes. One farmer was walking outside to get water from a well. When he had gotten some way from the farmhouse, he saw a white animal which looked to be about the size of a large sheep. Suddenly the animal stirred, and it became clear that it was in fact much larger than he had assumed. The animal leapt into motion and ran towards the farmer who recognized what it was. A polar bear, or as we say in Icelandic, a white bear. 
The farmer ran towards the house and was likely saved by the intervention of two dogs who slowed the animal down. He reached the farm but wasn't able to close the door before the bear followed him inside. He was able to climb upstairs and out of the reach of the animal. All the while the dogs kept hounding the bear. The intruder went through a connecting door towards one of the other homes. There a young woman, who was still in bed since it was early in the morning, heard the warning cries of her neighbor and also managed to climb upstairs just as the bear entered her room. She alerted her brother, another farmer, and ran with him out to the sheep cot to warn laborers who were out minding the sheep. The five of them, including the farmer and the young woman, returned to the house but didn't dare enter. Then they saw the bear barging out of a window. One of the men fell down right in front of the animal but was saved by a third dog who came to his defense. The group managed to get inside. They locked the door behind them but the bear attacked it like a battering ram and it soon gave way. In the meantime, the people had managed to go upstairs. The bear went back outside and circled the house, trying to find the people, even managing to stick his head through a window where he came face to face with the inhabitants who did not like the look of him. Fortunately, the window was too small for it to enter, so instead the bear started eating the dog he had just killed. Inside, people had managed to find guns in the attic. Unfortunately, those were rusty and frozen. But one of the men grabbed a gun and got in position at an upstairs window, well out of the reach of the bear. He pulled the trigger three times, and each time the gun failed. But since this was real life and not a folktale, the fourth time was the charm. The bullet actually fired from the gun and hit the bear in the head, killing it instantly. The bear was measured. It was over 1.6 meters long but weighed only 52 kilograms. That is 5 feet 4 inches and 115 pounds. A post-mortem of sorts revealed that there was no food in its digestive tracts. From this, people deduced that the animal had almost nothing to eat for a long while. Though polar bears are known to be quite deadly, mostly due to their speed and strength, They aren't often this ferocious, except when protecting their cubs. It is easy to imagine a different ending to this story, especially if the dogs had not been so determined in their defense. Only one of them survived after having hidden under a bed. There is no record of an intervention by the cats of the farm. The latter part of 1918 should have been a joyous time. The armistice of November 11th ended the First World War. But more importantly, on December 1st, the Kingdom of Iceland was founded. You have likely never heard of this entity. It was a form of independence, but Iceland still relied on Denmark for matters of foreign relations and defense. Iceland also had a king, the same Danish king as before. So between 1918-1944, King Christian X was king of Denmark and Iceland. The founding of this new kingdom was a result of an independent struggle which really gained momentum in the 19th century. In the decades leading up to 1918, Icelandic politics had almost entirely been focused on this. But the Spanish flu, 
called Spanskavikin in Icelandic, literally the Spanish sickness, made December 1st a somber occasion. Despite the name, this influenza seems to have had its origin in the U.S. military base Camp Funston in Kansas. Soldiers from the U.S. brought the virus to Europe sometime in April of 1918. In the summer, the virus seems to have mutated, with troop movements, malnutrition and a lack of hygiene in the trenches, the deadly virus spread rapidly. At the same time, both sides of the war wanted to keep the seriousness of the situation out of the press. When the influenza reached neutral Spain and infected King Alfonso XIII, the Spanish press was free to report on what was really happening. The world assumed the virus had hit that country especially hard, and that is why it was named the Spanish Flu. Censorship also meant that people didn't take the pandemic seriously. Since only Spain seemed to be hit hard, there was no real preparation going on. Reading Icelandic newspapers from August and September 1918 makes it clear that people weren't aware how deadly the virus would be. If Icelanders were focused on the Spanish flu, all that changed on October 12th when a volcanic eruption started in one of Iceland's most famous volcanoes, Katla. Here I should make an etymological point and say that Katla is related to the English word kettle. The most dangerous part of eruptions in Katla are not the lava flows, but rather floods. The heat from the eruption melts glacial ice, which builds up enormous pressure, which in turn releases floods, which can often be deadly. A coincidental delay in assault delivery evidently saved people who would otherwise have been herding sheep where the flood raced to the sea. When you are traveling in the south of Iceland, you should be aware that you might be in the way of a deadly ice flood if a glacial-covered volcano would erupt then and there. In the south, the floods and giant icebergs were the most visible parts of Katla's eruptions. While for much of the rest of Iceland, it was the ass which came raining down. When Katla quieted down on November 4th, it already seemed like old news. On the 18th of October, two ships had arrived in Reykjavik, Willemus from the US and Botnia from Denmark. The virus spread quickly. The tone of the papers was quick to change. On the 6th of November, it was estimated that the third of the people of Reykjavik had caught the virus. On Armistice Day, the 11th, none of the papers were being printed. In their stead, there was a simple one-page news alert. At that time, about 10,000 of the 15,000 population of Reykjavik had caught the flu. When the papers resumed their regular publication, it was on November 17th, and the front page of one paper was simply filled with the names of the dead. The health services were overwhelmed, and some of the victims were simply buried in mass graves. When I said the papers had changed their tone, I was talking about the papers in Reykjavik. It took longer in the north. When you go through the papers from my hometown of Akureyri, you get the feeling that the writers assumed that the people in the capital were being a bunch of crybabies. Luckily, that didn't last, but instead the papers were full of the kind of punditry you could recognize from modern times. Everyone knew how to fight the flu. Serious measures were implemented. 
road leading from the west of Iceland to the north were closed, as were roads from the south to the east. Consequently, the virus didn't reach about 40% of the inhabitants of Iceland. So when I look back at family information from 1918, I don't see a spike in mortality rates among my relatives. It is easy to imagine how the influenza could have devastated those families if it had not been stopped. Iceland's population was about 92,000 in 1918. Official records put the death toll at 484 people, so a little under 1% of those who were in areas affected by the virus were killed by it. It really was a huge blow. Healthy adults rather than older people were hit the hardest, with pregnant women being especially vulnerable. Likely, an earlier strain of influenza had rendered the older generation more capable of fighting off the disease. Real-life consequences meant that the families lost the breadwinners, the parents leaving the children and the elderly to fend for themselves. So, when crowds gathered on December the 1st, there was little merriment. I guess most Icelanders were just hoping that the future might be brighter. That is it for today. Thanks to Christopher Barth, Austin Yule, Kara Stevens, Evan Williams, Jon Helgeson, Robin Williams and all my other supporters. And as always, special thanks to Troy Williams, Kristen Rose and Catherine Matthews, friends of the podcast. I am Oli Nestis Oliason and this has been Stories of Iceland, episode 29, Iceland in 1918, Pandemic and Other Threats.